Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt, here with Jonathan Hanefinger at uh, Nicholson Library at Linfield University, McMinnville. It's February 22nd, 2023. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us today. Of course. Uh, first question, why wine? Why wine? You know, I've, uh, I've been prepared for that question. For, <laughs> and it's been rolling in my head for several days. Uh, my answer may be different than if you'd first asked me. Uh, as I'd mentioned earlier on, I was a history major in college, and I've always been fascinated with the history of civilization, if you will. And uh, as a as a guy who studied history in America, it's always more bent towards American and European sense. And wine was always a connecting force through civilization and the, the starting of civilization. Wine's been around for 10,000 years now, and I always thought, found it very fascinating that there was this product and this art form that could be created and through many different countries, and it was not just a life force, but it was part of a communal thing, it was part of a religious thing, and it was an art form that ultimately has to be destroyed in order to be appreciated. Uh, so it's a very temporal thing too, right? This is something that will not exist forever. No matter what you do, it's, it's going to go away at some point. So it's, it's this really uh, interesting, elusive, uh, cultural, artistic, uh, thing that that people both make and destroy constantly every day, and I think that's that's there's an uh, an attraction to that that uh, I've been always kind of a geared towards, um, and certainly in my past, uh, my life took a, a change, and there was periods of my my life where I said, "What am I going to do?" And uh, the ultimate was, well, I'm just going to travel the world and drink wine, which uh, seemed very um, hippie, freeloading, if you will. Uh, and my parents certainly had that mentality of like, yeah, that's a great retirement plan, <laughs> but like, what are you really going to do with your life? And that was the ultimate, I'm going to travel the world and drink wine. Uh, now, of course, they think that it's the greatest thing in the world because I travel the world and I drink wine now. Uh, uh, do less traveling now as, as a winemaker in Oregon, but certainly just as much drinking wine. Uh, so I think that's kind of gets to the heart of it, of why wine. Uh, yeah, now it's becoming an all-compassing and passion, if you will. So tell us about life before wine for you. Where were you born and where did you grow up and what did you do before wine? Uh, I was born in Denver, Colorado. Everyone associates me from Texas, but I was actually born in Denver, Colorado. And then we moved to Texas uh, at the one of the energy transitional periods in the late 80s. Uh, my dad was in the oil industry, and so we moved down to Houston, Texas. Grew up, spent most of my life, well, yeah, most of my life, almost all my life in Houston, Texas, and then uh, graduated and went to Ohio for college, of all places, 
because I wanted to go to some place that was completely radically different that I would never go to and would absolutely flip my mind and I didn't know a single person. There wasn't a single person that I knew at that school when I entered. The graduating class of my high school was larger than my entering college class. I went to the College of Worcester in Wayne County, Northern Ohio. And that's uh, really tricky when you visit Northern Ohio in the fall. It is a gorgeous place. In December, January, February, March, April, May, it's not a gorgeous place. It's very cold, it's very uh, desolate, it's a, an, or it's a mud pit. Uh, so that was kind of a, a shock to me. In college, I waited tables, like a lot of people do, because it's easy money. And I got very attracted to uh, the wine because, one, Boy, it tastes great. I enjoyed, you know, uh, drinking wine. And also, I could make more money if I knew a lot more about wine as a waiter. Uh, and, I, and I became really obsessive with this for a while. And as a history major in college, it also helped that I could take a break from my studies, but then go down this other avenue of passion. And an old buddy in mine, who's also a history major, he's now a professor in uh, Washington Lee. Yeah, I think he's there. Him and I used to get together like uh, every Friday or Saturday and we'd go down and get our pennies together and pick one bottle of wine that we'd get at the wine store and then we'd come back and we'd write notes on the bottle and we'd taste it together and we'd put it up on a shelf like a dead trophy and we'd have this whole shelf after about a year. Uh, Graduated, oh, and then went and studied abroad in Czech Republic. That's kind of a crucial piece of the, the story here because uh, that's what set the ball in motion. Studied in Eastern Europe, Central Europe, and we could do anything as a uh, study abroad. Study abroad, it was an independent study program that they said you had to do anything you wanted. And I thought, well, I'm going to be a history major, and then eventually I'm going to go to law school, and then once I go to law school, I'm going to be stuck in Texas, because you take the bar wherever you are, and that's it. So this is kind of my opportunity to do whatever I want, and I'm not going to do the classic history thing. I'm going to do a report about uh, Eastern European, Eastern Central European wine industry, pre, during, and post-communist rule, and because I'd learned about this fields called Takai, and the Takai fields that had been around a thousand years before France had ever started doing wine, and they, this was, uh, you know, considered sacred by Christianity, the Eastern Orthodox, even the Ottoman Empire, like these were considered the fields. Um, so that's what prompted me to do this whole study of pre, during, and post-communist rule, and it rolled in, of course, into the EU acquisition of part of these countries and the EU. And, uh, and I, weirdly enough, one of my roommates was actually, his family grew grapes for the Takai production that was just kind of randomly, so I ended up talking with him a bunch. Graduated college, went off to, decided I was gonna take a year off before law school and uh, went back to Texas, and then I got involved with some political aspirations. Uh, not to get into which party and what have you, but you 
can find and figure it out in the story, but uh, I worked for a political organization and was in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and uh, was in charge of about 56 precincts to get out the vote, because Pennsylvania was a swing state at the time. And uh, we did great. It did not go the way we, the state went the way we wanted, but the election did not. So one of those things about if you do really great in election, but you lose, you still don't have a job. You know, so like congratulations on doing a great job, you're fired. Uh, so I didn't know what I was gonna do and went home, bought a book called How to Get Into the Best Law Schools and uh, bought an LSAT prep and chapter one was why do you want to go to law school and it was do you want to change society well you don't need to be a lawyer to change society do you want power and influence well let's be honest most it's like a one percent that have a power and influence is it because you want money well we got some things to tell you not all lawyers make gobs of money um, is it because you want to uh, do you really love the law if you love the law keep going. Just so you know, for the same amount of money, you could go to northern Italy for a year and go learn how to cook. You could spend a year in Latin America and become uh, completely conversational in Spanish. So now you've been on three different continents, you know two different languages. You could spend a summer doing bicycle tours throughout France. You go to the Fletcher School of Economics, get your master's in economics, and go to the London School of Economics, or Fletcher School for poli-sci and the London School of Economics for masters. You'd have two masters. You You'd be on three different continents, you'd speak at least three languages, and it would be cheaper than going to the top law schools. And I went, good argument. And I returned that book, and I said, I'm gonna travel the world and drink wine. And uh, from that point, I went back to waiting tables, and anyone that dragged a wine bag in, I was all over them. Uh, I was that precocious, young, 20-something kid that just, if you had a bottle of wine, if you opened something up, I was all over you. I asked every question I possibly could. Who are you? Who do you work for? How did you get started? What are you reading? What are you tasting? Where's this wine from? How does this work? How does it explain everything to me from the start? And uh, yeah, that, that's where the bug, that's where I got bit. And then it was all nothing but wine. Uh, and from that point, I started working at some restaurants. Uh, I went on, <laughs> I went on, I actually will talk about this because it's okay, she knows and it's fine. Uh, I went on a date with one gal a couple times and we went back to her, she was living at her parents. We went back, I remember sitting outside and her dad came outside and said, I have these two bottles of wine if you guys want to drink. She had no interest in it whatsoever. She, she was not interested in wine. Uh, her dad owned a restaurant at the time, and we spent probably about two or three hours talking about those bottles, him and I. We became very good friends. That killed that relationship real quick. Uh, she has since now works for her dad. She now runs the restaurant and is the wine buyer and is a good friend and is married and has a kid, and I see her and talk to her all the time. And he became a mentor of mine, eventually hired me and brought me into the restaurant and uh, called El Maison in the Rice Village in Houston, Texas, and it's still thriving to this day. And uh, Peter used to pull me aside when we'd be just absolutely slammed and I'd be waiting tables. I mean, like, stuff is on fire. And he'd go, tell me the three grapes of cava. And I was like, I don't have time for this, Peter. 
I have tables that are literally yelling at me. He's like, I don't care, I own the restaurant. Tell me the three grapes of kava. So he took me under this wing and really forced me and forced it in. And at the same time, we were taking wine classes together. And uh, yeah, so he, he really spun that. And then from, from him, I actually went off to start running my own wine programs uh, in Texas with, uh, after that. Uh, but I would say that was one of the major inspirations. As you started to learn wine, both sort of on a formal taking classes level uh, and more informally in a restaurant level, what were you finding that was most appealing to you as you're asking all these questions? What was most appealing to you? What were the rabbit holes you really wanted to dive down? Ooh, that's a good question. The rabbit holes to dive down. I, I think it was more learning about the, again, history major, the cultural aspect of where each one of these wine came from. And it was when you start learning about a certain wine, you have to start learning about not just, okay, this is a Pinot Noir from France. You got to learn that this is a Pinot Noir from Burgundy. And if you're going to learn about Burgundy, you got to learn about the soil. And if you're going to learn about the soil, you need to know the history of the fact of what was going on and how it developed. Uh, you know, it's not just somebody just came along and planted Pinot Noir and said, this is the spot. It was thousands of years. You know, you got to go back to like the Romans who were planting there, you know, 2,000 years ago, and then the evolution of how it wasn't originally Pinot Noir, but it, it, it came to be after a while. You know, and you get in the history of Corton Charlemagne, who he drinks so much you know, red wine that his beard would change because he spilled all over, so he switched to white wine, and that's where we get Corton, and then that became the Corton Charlemagne, which is the Grand Cru. And you start understanding the food, and you know, uh, it, if you're, one of the classic 101 pairings is pair whatever the regional food is with the regional wine, and 99% of the time it works. But you gotta know the regional food if you're gonna do that with the wine, so then you gotta understand their cooking aspects, and then why are they cooking, and what's being grown, and what's the weather like. Uh, so I think the rabbit hole became, you almost become obsessed with these little micro communities after a while. Um, and then you gotta, you know, then there's thousands of different ways of making the wine. Why do they made it this way compared to this way? Sometimes it's because they were just poor. Because <laughs> there was no access to X, Y, and Z, right? Uh, and, or it was, uh, well, it just, that's what we had to do. You know, sometimes the lack of resources and money uh, gives you a lot of creativity because you're just gonna figure it out because you have no other options. Um, but again, I think that the rabbit hole was more about learning about the different communities and these, these micro environments uh, throughout the world. I think that's what still fascinates me. You know, there's there's definitely a different cultural aspect, both when it comes to uh, the type of food, the type of people, the way people interact, the way people just act of, say, Walla Walla, uh, McMinnville, you know, uh, Ashland, Sonoma, Napa, right? I mean, just inside our little microcosm of just the Western United States, there's a radical difference between McMinnville 
and Napa and Sonoma, Hillsburg and Walla Walla or Hood. You know, I mean, that's so understanding that is is still very crucial uh, in a lot of aspects of making wine and being part of the wine community. So tell me about selling wine, then, especially in the early days, as you were selling wine in restaurants. What did you find uh, people were looking for? What did you find sold the most wine? What were the what was the kind of the secret to unlocking more money, more sales? Oh, if I was a smart man, I'd make Cabernet Sauvignon, because um, Texas loves Cabernet Sauvignon, and I, I mean I've I've said that a couple times. Like, if I really wanted to dial in on like making wine and making money to sell back to my own. Uh, community, it would be Cabernet Sauvignon. That's not to say that someday I won't, but uh, that is certainly the key for that. Uh, I would say learning, the, the big thing is, is asking questions and trying to engage and, and trying to understand where someone's coming from. Um, it's, it takes a certain skill set whether it's learning or on the job or whether it's a, a natural knack to be able to assess someone in about 30 seconds of what they want and what's in their budget and do they care about the food pairing or do they just don't care? Are they here to wow and impress their date? Are they on a business meeting? Are they on a just a, is it a family event? Or is this just a, I'm ordering wine because we want to drink something and I don't care because I'm in the middle of a like, we're just going to have the talk and this is such a side piece. Um, and I think uh, learning how to read people and ask questions was probably one of the most important things in a restaurant setting. Uh, knowing certain trends help, knowing I mean, do ratings matter to certain people? Some people it matters, some people it doesn't. And sometimes in the early 2000s, it was very important to know ratings. And now today, it seems like there are so many different ratings that they're not as powerful as a tool as maybe they once were. Uh, so selling wine is that aspect in restaurants. I have sold wine outside of restaurants in distribution and uh, I was terrible at distribution. Uh, that was the one job in the wine business I think that I was absolutely uh, awful at. I just I just really I just didn't like it and I don't I've tried to struggle with why and what what was going on with that. Um, I think there is the the aspect of you're going into somebody who is the sommelier, the wine bar, what have you and they already have a guard up and so you're trying to figure out how to get through that guard. When someone comes to your restaurant and they're sitting at the table and they're ordering a bottle of wine, if they have that menu in there, they're getting a bottle of wine. Like guaranteed they're buying something from you. Like it's almost harder to walk them out of the sale than it is for just like finding something on that list. You know, when you're going in to sell wine as a distributor, they already have a ton of wine and they already they're going to tell you they already know more than you before you even walked in the door. So it's that you really got to be on, it's more of a sales game than it is a wine aspect game. Uh, and I think that's why now selling my own wine, I do better than when I was in distribution because I, I knew it, I've made it, had my hands on it. And I thought I'd, 
I thought it'd be more difficult to sell, well, it's still difficult to sell my one. I thought it'd be more difficult because I'd have more of an emotional aspect of when I hear no, but uh, no is actually good. No is better than nothing, you know. A yes is good, a no is good, because a no, I, I, I know how to proceed. Uh, a okay, I'll call you tomorrow is a, uh, man, that's the tough one, you know. Uh, yeah. Not unlike asking for a date. Yeah, like I'd rather just be told no, I'm not into you, than like, oh, you know, ask me next week. <laughs> ask you next week, I don't, okay, great, you know, like I'd rather just move on and spend my energy somewhere else. Uh, I think a lot of people are, have that same attitude in the wine business. So tell me about, you mentioned building, getting into other restaurants and, and starting to become the wine in charge of wine lists, in charge of wine programs. Tell me about that step for you and about the kind of your philosophy of building a wine program. What, what, what did you look for and what was important to you to, to, to be shown in a wine list? Well, I, my first real, I guess, grasp of power, uh, my first real asked, you know, access to wine would have been working for Brennan's of Houston, which is... Uh, a restaurant that's part of the Commander's Palace out of New Orleans, and they have been a restaurant dynasty for well over a hundred years. Brennan's itself had been in business for, I think when I was there, about, f we were going on 40 some odd years. And they had deep pockets, and there, the gentleman who I worked underneath, I was wine guy number two, that was literally my title, <laughs> is uh, their aspect was we are buying for four-year blocks. So what was nice is I could taste a wine and say, I really like this, but I don't even want to put it on the wine list for another four years, which I don't know any restaurant that does that because that is a lock above a lot of assets. Um, and I, even now as I'm a business owner and winemaker, I'd look at that and go, dude, that's, that is a lot of money you're locking up for quite some time. Uh, Obviously, we couldn't do that with all the wine. We had limited space and limited funds. Uh, but with, with that group, it was building, trying to build the most uh, amazing wine with all the wines from around the world. So it was a constant look for anything from around the world and then pepper it with some of the, I would say, geeky wines. And so my wine guy won. He used to call himself, I'm a chef who's a wine guy. And he looked at me as the geeky guy. So if you wanted to talk geeky psalm stuff, he'd walk away from the table and pull me in. You know, that was, that was not his forte. So his, his forte was talking pretty basics, pretty classics, hiring Cabernets, Amarones, Italy uh, was more of his forte. If you wanted to get into you know, some sort of, oh, this is actually not Chardonnay, it is Pinot Gris that's grown on the hillside of Corton by only this one guy of this one aspect. I mean, I was your guy that you'd talk to. And so that my driving force was always trying to find those unique things that I could tell a story about. Uh, stories drove sales, and stories also drive client relations. Um, so if you always had a a well-maintained story, you could build a great sale and you could build really great clientele that would come back. And one thing that the Brennans instilled 
in everyone that they hired. I had to work every single aspect of the job. I had to be a food runner, a prep chef. I had to literally work every single position before I was allowed to be on the floor. And the reason for that is they wanted me to understand how the entire team worked as a whole. And that there wasn't a single aspect of that restaurant that if something happened, I couldn't fill in. And what that allowed is I could knew all the pairings. And we could talk as deep about any of the food or any of the wine or any of the preparations as you wanted. But at the end of the day, one thing that the Brennans always would hammer in is that uh, it, you were there to make a memory. No one was going to remember the food. No one's going to remember the wine. They'll remember it was good. They'll remember it was a great pairing. They'll remember how you made them feel. But they're not going to remember any aspect of it except how they felt in 50 years, and 40 years, and 30 years. So the whole point of everything of this restaurant is to make a memory and to make someone feel good. So sometimes when we do these wine tables, it was about creating that story and creating the experience uh, and having an intimate connection. I was the window into the world of wine. So the more I knew individuals in the wine world, the more it became a passion because I could say, I know this guy who grew this. I have walked this vineyard. I have, you know, pet their chicken. I have, you know, seen the cows in action, right? Like, uh, you know, I've tripped over the rocks. Uh, and, and that becomes, you become this showman. You become this magician. You are the, the mirror into this world. And I think that was one of the aspects for Brennan, certainly. Uh, after Brennan's burned to the ground during a hurricane, uh, and I didn't have a job anymore, they've since rebuilt and they're doing great, uh, but that was kind of the end of that ride. Uh, moved on to another restaurant that was 100% Italian focused. So that was always a finding wine to match more with the food, and worked with an individual who had very focused Italian concepts that were very designed for certain regional. So we started really focusing much more apt on the wines of that certain region. And so you wanted to keep it on an affordability and regionally specific. And then after that, I went to another fine, fancy dining restaurant, but they only wanted to buy wines from France, Italy, and America. So it was you're playing with that, but it was such a very high clientele that they wanted, they were very score driven, price driven, allocation driven. It was about who, uh, you know, it was, it, it was very much a restaurant that was focused on who's who and you were there to be seen. And part of being seen was instead of, they didn't want the story, they wanted, it was a show. It was a very showy presentation. Uh, each one of these little aspects is a very fascinating thing about the wine industry. And what's unique about it is at the end of the day, we're all humans and we're all on one team in all honesty. And the, the aspect of wine making and wine business is it's a team sport, right? Uh, the, the end of the day is that that bottle gets opened and drank and hopefully enjoyed by whoever opened it up. And you, you can't, None of this works if one person's out of the, the configuration or is not in the same step. Whether you have your, your grower, your winemaker, your distributor, 
your buyer, your salesman, the SOM, whatever, all the way down to finally the person who's opening up that wine and drinking. If one person's out of step, it doesn't work. And I think that's one of those things that you learn working in restaurants, and especially for a family like the Brennans, is that same thing in restaurants. You, you might be the big chef. If your food runner isn't on their game, you're not getting the right food to the right table, and someone's going to be upset. I don't care how great of a food you cook. If someone doesn't do some step here, if the dishwasher doesn't clean the pans, you don't have a pan to clean, to cook it. You know, like, so it's, it is a whole team sport, and it's a team effort. And uh, I think that's certainly how I look at the wine business now, too. So with all that, I'm, I'm curious, <clears throat> what do you feel is the, 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 the main role of a sommelier? What, what, is, what is your job there to do? I mean, number one, to sell wine. <laughs> uh, number two, stay in budget. I would say, uh, you know, depending on who the owner of the restaurant is, that might be reversed. <laughs> might be, no, your number one job is to stay in budget and make us money. And by making us money, you've got to sell the wine. You know, it's a job. Uh, so there is an economic, capitalistic aspect of a job. And so that's, at the end of the day, it's not to go broke and to make returns on investments. And uh, the sommelier's job is to sell wine and stay in budget. Now, what does that mean? You know, that's the very basic, but as you flesh that out, it becomes they're, they're a storyteller, they're a showman, um, and they are part of the front of the house that's supposed to make the magic happen as you dine. And they need to be working intimately with the chef to make sure part of that magic is doing pairings and working as, as a team. Sometimes it's uh, frustrating to see a restaurant that there is the chef who is on their own path and they have their vision. And then there's a sommelier wine buyer and they have their path and their vision. But their paths are not together. There's this like weird, they each think that they are the ego of the restaurant and people come to see each one. So you, you, you struggle sometimes where you look at a wine list and you look at the food and you go, I don't know what's going on here. And what, what's, I, what is going on here and what's going on is there's hubris going on. There's two different egos that are fighting each other and they don't understand that if they just work together, that the greater together is better than the individual parts. So I think Assam is, is job is to listen and to pay attention and sometimes it's to uh, suppress that ego. The ego's a really interesting thing in, in the world of wine, many worlds. Uh, so you gotta suppress that ego sometimes. Just because you like that really funky, interesting, orange, sparkling wine from Mallorca doesn't mean that here at our steakhouse where people want to spend two to two thousand two hundred to two thousand a bottle, they're probably not going to be into that orange sparkling wine from Mallorca uh, that you know you put on your menu for fifty bucks. You know, it's 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 gonna sit there and die on your menu and that wine is unfortunately probably won't ever get shared or see the light of day and <laughs> 
you've wasted money, you've wasted someone's, you've wasted not your own money, but you've wasted also the winemaker's money, the distributor's money, like you've wasted a lot of money that's just kind of sitting there and it's, because you loved it, you loved it so much, you've like pet it to death, you know, it's that, it's like Lenny in, of Mice and Men, you know, like, it's not, the, that's not how we're gonna do this, you know, uh, and I think sometimes that the idea is they forget it's a job. It's great to have passions, and I love passions, and if you can hone your passion correctly, it will be a great tool, but it can be a, a tool that can hurt you as well. So you mentioned, obviously, your, the thesis statement for this interview was traveling the world and drinking wine. Traveling so the world and drinking wine, So that's tell right, me yeah. about the traveling the world part. Um, before you came to Oregon, tell me about uh, highlights. No, I think that's, that's really important because that's the reason why I'm here in Oregon. Um, was inspiration from travel. Uh, my partner and I, uh, soon to be wife, we, she lived in Peru and was working for a Korean oil and gas company, lived in Lima, and one of her good friends was a banker in Lima, and he decided he didn't want to be in the banking world anymore, and he wanted to go become a winemaker. And so he left and went up into the Andes and started, planted some vines and started growing grapes and making some wine. So when uh, he did this, he also needed some money and sold a little bit of land to her, to my partner. And uh, later we get together and then she took me to Peru and we've walked this land. That's, she has a very small partial of it. And while he is very poor, uh, for the most part, uh, you know, you, Duncan on the wine business to make a ton of money, obviously. Uh, he has, was very rich in life. He had children that he'd put on his shoulder and we'd walk up the hill and pick oranges from the tree that we'd bring back down and open this up and we'd put it in our Pisco that was homemade, that was sitting on the, you know, the sh like basically a water cooler of just Pisco. And it was a very um, rich life in being a part of this atmosphere, this incredibly beautiful, high, 10,000-foot Andes overlooking, you know, the mountaintops. And, uh, you know, one thing that's lovely about being in the wine business is you, there's very few places where grapes grow and there's a business that's ugly. Fantastic. You're not going to Midland, Texas, <laughs> usually, to find uh, wine. Uh, you know, it's, it's not like working in the oil fields. You're not gonna be put out in the middle of sea on an oil platform to make wine. So traveling the world and drinking wine opens you up to a lot of beautiful, beautiful places. And when we were in Peru, her and I had every other day off together and we realized it was not gonna be sustainable. And so we decided we were gonna move to Oregon to go make wine and um, why Oregon? Oregon has always fascinated me for the aspect of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay because before I was with her, I spent a lot of time in Burgundy, France, of course, as, as a lot of people up here spend a lot of time or have been influenced by. And one person who was a major influence in Burgundy, France, I've gone well over, I don't know, couple dozen times at this point. Uh, at one point I was going every single year and one person who I spent more time with than anyone else was uh, Becky Wasserman, who you have done the interview with. 
And uh, yeah. So she was a major influence. I couldn't go to France. Well, I could, but France loves people who visit. They also love when you leave. Uh, it's kind of the attitude, right? And, and it's a very small community. It's a very uh, intimate community, and it's very hard to break in, especially if you don't speak French, and especially if you aren't French. And so I, I don't speak French uh, very well or at all. It's whatever I've learned. I've learned kind of on, I've never taken a formal lesson. And uh, that wasn't going to happen. I wasn't going to go to France uh, to make wine. So I wanted to go to a place that could emulate that. And as Becky's influence in the sphere of Pinot Noir and Willamette Valley, as a legend as she is, she also influenced looking into Willamette Valley. And so when we initially came up to Oregon, we'd actually looked at Southern Oregon, Milton Freewater, The Hood, Willamette, uh, you know, sometimes sommiers love to talk about how, well, I'm not going to do the same thing as everyone else. I'm going to do some different varietal and from some new region and what have you. But again, at the end of the day, it's, it is a business and you do have to sell. <laughs> and Willamette Valley certainly has the gravitas of, uh, of the world's, you know, attention and in all honesty, it's, it is the attention seeker of the world. And that's not to say that these other regions, uh, the Rogue Valley, Illinois, Milton Freewater, Hood, they're all fantastic regions, but they all have to go through a certain growing pains as well. And I wanted to be a Pinot Noir producer. I wanted to be those guys that I was admiring in uh, Burgundy, you know? Um, it's, it's a little intimidating because I don't think I will ever ever be on an aspect or on the same level as most of those heroes and most of those guys and gals that I've gotten the pleasure to dine with and walk the vineyards with and drink their wines and be in their cellars. I think that that's a, uh, one of those things about making wine is that it's, you only get one chance every year and we're not gonna live forever. So there is a, the time is ticking and, you know, it's just one of those, and you can only refine it only so much each year. So, you know, where is that ego thinking that you can ever compete with somebody whose family has been doing it for hundreds of years, who live on the land and grew up on the land, basically grew up doing that? And uh, I, I, there isn't competing. And I think that's something that uh, is really important for a winemaker is stop trying to compete. Just, just don't. Um, and it's something that I think Oregon is finally figuring out to some aspect. You know, growing up in the wine business, we were always marketed as, well, we're on the same, well, Lamet's on the same parallel as Burgundy. So you see the climate, it's very similar. And it was coming here, spending more time on the land, going to get uh, viticultural management classes, um, tasting more of the wines, being really intimately involved, that means nothing. Uh, you know, same parallel, Houston and Cairo are on the same parallel. One is in the middle of the desert and one is in the swamp. That doesn't mean you should go plant rice in Cairo, you know, like it, or it just, that doesn't make any sense, um, being on the same aspect like that. So I, I tend to now look at Oregon as, Oregon's Oregon, and we're not Burgundy, and 
in a lot of ways, thank goodness we're not burgundy. That's good, that, that is a benefit. The soil's not the same, the aspect's not the same, the pH of the soil's not the same, our clonal's not the same, our disease isn't the same. In a lot of ways, that's good. There's things that they deal with that are far harsher than what we deal with. Um, you know, and I, and I think that's something that you can't compete, and, and I think you don't compete. And I think it's good to do your own trajectory. Uh, so what's cool about traveling is that, to bring it back to that, that question, is that you get influenced a lot of this, and it's not just a, you don't just get to drink the wine and hang out with these people, but you really get to intimately know a spot, and after a while you understand why that spot's special, but also why you should never compete with that spot, and that's why it is special. You know, there, there's, so you can be influenced, you can be um, inspired, uh, but to try to emulate is, is a fallacy in many ways. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, if you can, again, be inspired and be influenced, but I think emulating is, is a, that's a folly, that's a very difficult, that is a, a, a house of cards that you're building on and your foundations are gonna be rocked when one thing doesn't go right. Um, yeah, you know, I, and you see that when you travel to Australia and you visit some of these regions, the Yara and the Geelong and Mornington and these other areas that are making some stellar wines, some stellar Pinot Noir, but they're not trying to be Burgundy. They're trying to be the Mornington, Geelong, the Yara, like they're trying to be their own aspect and they will never be like Willamette Valley. And we can say that very proudly, but we'll never be like the Mornington and Yara either, right? So, and I think that's something that's very important is when you travel, you, you come away with a better appreciation of where you came from and where you're at. And, uh, you know, it's, what is it? Dylan Thomas says, you can never go home. And that's very true. You can never go home because home is never the same. Um, but I don't think that's a, a negative thing. I think that's a really good thing. And I think that's what inspires and can transform a region to do better. Um, when you travel to these regions and you say, yeah, this is the end all and be all of Romani Conti and DRC, but we're doing some pretty stellar stuff too on, but it's just different on a different level. Um, and I think that's, that's what's great about traveling and, you know, drinking wine. Of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Why else would you travel? Why else would you travel? Yeah. So I'm curious, before we get to you coming to Oregon, uh, what were your impressions of Oregon as a state and of Oregon wines before you got here? Oh, I, it was all filled with sparkly vampires, right? Um, <laughs> no, I, <laughs> uh, no, I, Oregon was, um, my impression of Oregon, I'd visited a couple times, obviously on wine trips and to see producers. It, it always held a certain... Uh, Pacific Northwest in general holds a certain mystique, especially coming from a place like Texas, uh, whereas Texas is all about yahoos and cowboys, or it's either, you grow up either wanting to be a cowboy or an astronaut, and that says a lot about Houston. I mean, that's, that is literally, you can tell, were you trying to be a cowboy or trying to be an astronaut? 
And I think in the Pacific Northwest, the aspect was always like, were you going to be a fisherman or a lumber guy or, you know, or wine as wine has started coming along. Uh, wine has definitely been central part of that. Um, but I always saw it as a very, not very populous area, uh, very rainy and cold, uh, cool, if you will, um, filled with forest and beautiful beaches or coastlines and beautiful mountains. Uh, and I think that's, yeah, that was more my aspect of it. And in, in a region that was doing some really cool stuff that was on the cusp of right there, mm -hmm. right there that people just hadn't really learned enough about. Um, and I still think it's, I think the entire state is on that cusp of really making, I, well, I think we make some fantastic stellar wines that are put up against anyone in the world. Uh, but I think that there is still so much potential to come in this state in all aspects of the state, whether it's in Milton Freewater, in Hood, in the Illinois, the Rogue, in Willamette Valley, like there is so much more that can happen and will happen in this state. And it's, uh, I think that's also why the inspiration of coming here is that, that the potential is just, I see so much potential in this, this region and this area and in this state um, versus not to talk bad about California, but I know that's in vogue in Oregon. Uh, and, but to talk bad about California, you know, you see Napa aspect and you see the Sonoma aspect and it's, um, it's, it's bought up a lot and it's gotten very expensive. And, you know, they are world class, but I think they're gonna have a lot of struggles going forward because there isn't maybe as much growth in some of the well-known regions and they're going to struggle with some global climatic changes which they already are and i think that when your land is so ridiculously expensive you you don't have the freedom to be as creative i've said that before sometimes when you don't have money and you don't because you don't have money, you don't have all the access to everything in the world, it forces your hand to be a little bit more creative and it forces you to be pushed in different ways that maybe you didn't think you were gonna go. And I think that certain regions, again, I'll say Napa, I'm not trying to talk bad about one region because there are a lot of good friends there and, and I do like the wines there, but I think the one aspect of Napa that they struggle with is when you invest so much money, if you don't make a wine that represents Napa in a classic style, Cabernet Sauvignon in a certain style, you're not gonna get the sales, you're gonna get pushback and you're making a big gamble. And the more money you gamble, the less wild you're gonna get with your idea, the more conservative you are gonna be with that money, rightfully so, right? I, a lot of people don't gamble with 10 million, 100 million plus amount of dollars. Uh, and it's, it's unfortunate because I think that there could be a lot of cool stuff that could happen, but at what price, right? Um, so I think that's what's really nice about Oregon is we don't, sure, it's still expensive. Winemaking is expensive. Um, it's expensive, <laughs> but you're not struggling. You know, I don't need to, to, to put $5 million out to start a 100 case production in Oregon right now. Uh, 
I think that that might change someday. But it's that there's so much areas we've had two new AVAs come online in the last uh, year. Mm -hmm. We've had two more before that in the last five. And I still think there is an argument to be made for at least two more that I could put in my mind right now, um, if not three, and that's just Willamette Valley, right? Like, we haven't even gotten into the Columbia Gorge, Hood, parts of Milton Freewater, which also is growing, and there's new AVAs coming on all the time, and Southern Oregon, and there's gonna be more stuff. At some point, Southern Oregon and Willamette are probably gonna merge. There's probably gonna be this point where there's wine being grown. You can drive all the way from Portland all the way down to Ashland, and there'll be some aspect of vines that you'll be able to see. Um, I don't see why it wouldn't be that way. So I think that's, uh, that's what's brought me to Oregon. So you mentioned the, the notion of coming to Oregon. What prompted you to want to make wine rather than coming here to sell wine or do something else in the industry? Oh, now, now I get to insult the sommeliers. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, so again, not to insult people, but there's going to be some people insulted, and oh well, c'est la vie. But uh, you know, we, I, I've, I've said this before to people, is you go to the Louvre in Paris. We can all name Leonardo's The Da Vinci, right? It's up on the wall. We all know where it is in the Louvre. You can probably name multiple artists that are in the Louvre or that are in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Do you know the name of the curator? Unless you're really into art, you don't know the name of the curator. And that's okay, it's fine. A curator has a passion about collecting art and guiding us and, and being our window into the art world. But that's what a sommelier is. That's what a wine buyer is. Same thing, they're the curator. So. I didn't want to be the curator anymore. I wanted to be the artist. I wanted to be the creator. I wanted to own my own business. I wanted to own my own destiny. I didn't want to work for anyone anymore. And uh, I've, I've had all the best wines in the world. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing that the access that I've had coming from a place like Houston, Texas that is so wealthy and so driven in travel being in the oil industry and so international that I've had the ability to go to almost all the greatest wineries in the world and try almost all the great wines in the world and try some of the greatest vintages of the world. And after a while, you get to a point where you go, okay, what's next? You know, and uh, I wanted a drive and the driving force was, well, now I get to create and I want to be the creator. Um, and even you got to set aside a lot of ego to do that, and you got to set you got to heep a fair amount of ego too. <laughs> but you got to set a certain aspect of the ego aside, because you you have to realize that uh, again you may never, ever, get to the point where you're happy. Mm -hmm. It's a constant drive. It's a constant push. Every vintage uh, is a new reset. Uh, every single time you're watching the weather and you see that there might be a late frost, you're freaking the, the heck out. You know, you're really um, dependent upon, again, you're, you're throwing yourself to the mercy of both the weather and the world. Uh, and 
you got to be a team player, and it really forces you to be a team player um, with your growers, with your distributors, with your interns, with your distribution channel, with your storage facility, uh, with your truck drivers. I mean, you know, all of this aspect is what makes the wine world work. Um, anyone that says, I control everything, uh, doesn't control anything, or is going to find out how little they actually control someday. You know, that, that hubris will snap at you. Um, so, I, the, the, yeah, I wanted to be that, that the controller of my destiny to some degree, as much as I could, uh, but also throw myself at the mercy of everyone and see what we can do. Um, and I think that uh, if it all fails, if it all just crumbles, I guess I'll go back to being a sommelier, you know? <laughs> and at least I'll have the aspect and the understanding uh, of the inner workings of how the sausage is made. And I think that that's, uh, I, I don't think I understand how important that was until now-ish in my life, because there's now the way I approach wine, taste wine, see wine, appreciate wine has totally changed. And I wish I'd kept a little bit of a journal on my thoughts and the way I tasted and the way, the whole aspect of the wine world before I got into this side, because it's, it's really fascinating to go back and talk with fellow sommiers and fellow wine, uh, wine collectors, the way I approach wine and think about it and think about wine. and um, There's a lot of stuff out there that is uh, just wrong, just, just totally wrong information. And I don't know whether I should shine light on it or not, because sometimes it's really just, I don't have time to explain <laughs> it to you. Like, just, sure, yeah, that's right. Yep, absolutely, you know, um, especially if it helps sales, right? Like. Yeah, sure. That's you're right. You know, it, it is magic. It, it, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yes, it is magic. Yes, that's exactly right. You know, and I, I just it's sometimes really funny to like when you talk to people and they, their aspect of just, huh, okay, you know, uh, yeah. So I think it, if it all fails, it will just make me a better sommelier and a better appreciator of the the world and wine in general. But I needed to try, and I needed to be a creator. And uh, again, part of the aspect of us moving up here was my partner and I needed more time together. And we just saw that rich lifestyle, poor, but rich lifestyle uh, of our friends in Peru. And I didn't know what else to do. I didn't want to go back to the restaurant business. I didn't want to go back into, uh, you know, I just, I just didn't want to do it. Mm -hmm. I, wanted to, I wanted to get my hands dirty quite literally, uh, you know, and, and I think there's something really cool about creating some sort of order from chaos that then becomes chaos again. Um, and I do a lot of gardening at home, so I spend a lot of time outside and with the plants, and so there's a lot of that aspect as well. So I think it's a culmination of a many passions that have finally come to fruition. So tell me about coming here, uh, timing-wise, when, when you came to Oregon, and get, getting your, I, I think I know the answer to this question already, and getting your project off the ground. Uh, what, what, what was the initial notion in terms of uh, name and style and how you were gonna, how you were gonna make wine, and how has it come, across, come along so far? Boy, that is a very big question. Um, uh, 
We came up in the wonderful year of 2020 where nothing was happening and it was just all roses and rainbows. Uh, now we, uh, when the pandemic hit, uh, I think it's gonna be really fascinating. Side note, I think it's gonna be really fascinating to watch a lot of these archives pre-times and post-times, as we call them, AC and BC. Uh, but, you know, that's influenced a lot of our lives, right? COVID hit in Houston, everything started shutting down, and we had to make the determination. We had already started planning a year before that we were gonna move to Oregon. And we had already come up here and scoped out some areas and drove around and started talking to some people up here. COVID hit, I had a great job. Um, and it was secure, wasn't going anywhere, it's gonna be fine. Uh, and we had that determination of like, well, if we, if we don't go and we're gonna wait out this thing, maybe it will, the world will come back together at some point. And uh, you know, then should we go after that? And, or should we go right now and just to hell with it? And we decided to hell with it because the world is always going to be, there's always going to be some roadblock. So might as well take this opportunity to just jump off the ledge because everything is in chaos. Might as well just make, just embrace the chaos and go for it. So we came up with literally no aspect except for um, we were going to make wine. And I mean, even down to the like, as we're driving up with everything in the car, there was still attitudes of, well, maybe we'll just stop in Walla Walla and start there. Maybe we'll stop, you know, we just, we, there was zero aspects except for I want to make wine. Um, I think the, something in my back of my mind was always Pinot Noir because I'm such a Burgundy fan and uh, fanboy of Burgundy. So I think Pinot Noir was always a driving force for me. Um, but it's also one of the most intimidating one to do, too. And there was a winemaker here in Willamette Valley that actually told me, uh, well, if that's your driving force and you're a fanboy, why wouldn't you do that? Because you, you, at some point, if you try to make some other varietal, your mind is always gonna be like, well, someday I'm gonna, someday I'm gonna, someday I'm gonna. So um, why wouldn't that be now, right? Like, and, and I've shared a lot of those I guess, uh, fears about like, well, I'll never achieve. And he's like, yeah, well, no duh, so what? Move on, you know? You know it, move on, right? Like, at least you know that, move on. Um, so I think that was the, the driving force was, wanted to make wine. It was always inspired by Pinot Noir. And so we got up here. <laughs> uh, of course, the, moved to Portland, and Portland was in its special spot at the point. We had federal troops on the squares. There were uh, protests going on. Things were being lit on fire. There were people literally sleeping on the streets. And then the forest all caught on fire. So then we had the massive fires of 2020. So it was very like, wow, we really embraced the chaos and the chaos embraced us. Uh, and uh, worked for, worked harvest that year, which was challenging in and of itself because you're basically working you know, it was one of those, well, if you didn't want to wear a mask for COVID, you're gonna wear a mask for the fire. Mm -hmm. So we wore, you know, respirators outside and stuff. And uh, thankfully that vintage, uh, Dan Dury, who's also been on the archive, 
was who I was working under at Lady Hill, and he advised me that, well, if everything is to hell and everything's shut down and there's nothing for you to do, you might as well just go back to school, man. Like, go learn viticultural management. So I, that's what I did. I went back to Chemeketa and went, took their viticultural management program and uh, spent, spent a whole little over a year really in the vines and uh, learning the management aspect there. And I think that was a really great program and a really great um, piece of advice that Dan gave me. And then went to uh, the facility with John and 21 and wanted to make Pinot Noir and uh, basically I was his intern, I was doing my own project and I was finishing up at Chemeketa all at the same time because why not I guess uh, if you're going to do something, if you're going to be a bear be a grizzly. Uh, so part of being with John which was really nice is that we share the facility, there's five of us in that facility and I got to as the intern and doing my own project, I got to learn a lot of each aspect from all these individuals and I listened to them, took a lot of notes. Um, did Pinot Noir, got to continue with Pinot Noir. And although I, sometimes there's the pushback in Portland about, well, Pinot Noir is dead. Uh, everyone does Pinot Noir that's so boring. We're so sick of it, we're over it. Um, I don't think they, understand that that's part of the community that they're in and you know you don't go to Burgundy and you don't go to Bordeaux and you don't go to Champagne and you hear them say we're sick of Champagne we're sick of Bordeaux we're sick of Burgundy matter of fact if you go to those places and you can find a wine that's not Burgundy or Bordeaux or Champagne or Barolo or Barbaresco whatever wine region you are in uh, it's am amazing if you find a wine that's not from that region that's that's a unique unicorn type thing they promote their own place like crazy. And sometimes that's what drives me crazy about Portland. Like they don't understand the access to world-class wine that they have and they keep wanting to do something new. It's that, it's part of that young wine movement. Young Psalms like to do this too. They always want to be unique and different. So, uh, you know, I just want to make classic, clean, uh, approachable wines and that's I think the driving force is that I want it to be texturally driven I want there to be a natural acidity and if I can do the first two the third of low alcohol should come naturally but I don't if there's high alcohol but it's textural and has acid then I don't care who cares right and I think it's part of working with what is the wine want to show me and uh, what is, how can we work with the grower, not forcing the grower's hand? Again, team aspect. You have to be on the same team. Otherwise, you're just, you're gonna have animosity and something is gonna go wrong and somebody's gonna get angry and you're gonna have to figure out how to fix it. And, and at the end of the day, it was really your fault that you started that because of your own hubris. Uh, so I think the aspect of coming here was Pinot Noir. That's approachable and clean and we'll start from there and then build on those foundation and blocks. Um, one aspect I never thought I would do was make Chardonnay. And year one I made Chardonnay. And because if Pinot Noir is intimidating, Chardonnay for me was even more. Because I think if, if I make meh Pinot Noir, 
You can figure out how to blend it or make it disappear. Somebody will buy it. It's red wine. It's relatively easy to play magician work with it. Somehow, push and pull or whatever. White wine, a little bit harder. Uh, you know, doesn't command sometimes the respect that it should with price points. And sometimes people will not pay as high of a price for a white wine compared to a red wine. And certainly knew those collectors as a psalm that would never buy anything over $20 for white wine, just wouldn't do it. They finally saw the errors of their ways many years later. Uh, now they obsessively collect some crazy white wines and champagnes. Uh, but you know, it's, it was one that was intimidating and my partner once again told me that we didn't come here to make conservative decisions and if there was an aspect of something that I really liked, pull the trigger. And I said, well, we're over budget. And she said, I control the budget, pull the trigger. So uh, we ended up making Chardonnay as well. And I think that Pinot Noir and Chardonnay are, are always going to have a certain aspect in my life making wine going forward. There will be others that will come along. Um, but I think that the, the goal there is, is crafting that, that classic style, Willamette Valley Pinot Noir which is delicious and fantastic. And as we know, anyone that knows wine history of Oregon knows it can hold itself up against Burgundy. And even though we're not, I'm not trying to compete with them and what have you, uh, there have been blind tastes and trials that have happened in the 80s due to Becky Wasserman sneaking things in at the last minute that radically rocked the wine world. And uh, as we can see even to this day, how much people in Burgundy are buying Willamette Valley um, constantly. Every year there's somebody that's buying more land here from France. So that's, that's a good indication that you're doing something right. If your heroes are buying in the land that you're supposed to be making wine in, uh, that's, that's good inspiration. Mm -hmm. Tell us about the name of your brand and uh, about, you, you, and you mentioned earlier selling wine. Tell me about how it's been selling your own wine. Uh, the name of the brand, I have Wild Child Winery, which uh, there's, it, it's a great name because, well, it, it, it allows me a lot of liberty to kind of do whatever I want. And I can just rest on the fact that I'm the wild child. <laughs> and the, the wife really came up with the aspect that I'm a little bit of a wild child. And a lot of this whole thing is a wild idea and a wild whole, uh, you know, inspiration to move 3,000 some odd miles in the middle of a pandemic, right before a forest fire and social upheaval and throw a bunch of money into the wind and see what happens with no real experience in doing this, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess the other nice thing about having the name Wild Child is you can actually say like, uh, as with some buddies in Central California, we dropped a bunch of LSD and I was inspired to make this type of wine. And you can say it at a, at a wine dinner in front of clients who are spending thousands of dollars a plate and they will all laugh and think you're great and think it's a great story and they won't know if it's actually true or not, but that's not the point. The point is that you sold the wine and used that story, right? And uh, I think that's one of the, the fun things about Wild Child is that we, it's, 
it's a little bit of a making fun of myself to some degree and making fun of the aspect of wine is super serious and we got to be very serious about this. Life is very serious and uh, it's not. It just is not. Uh, wine is a something that's supposed to be communal and enjoyed at every meal. It's supposed to be, you know, we should be celebrating the just everyday wines we, we sometimes people hold these things on, on pedestals and shelves with special lighting and they talk about how serious it is. Look at my furrows, I spent lots of money. This must be important, right? And that's part of their ego. And uh, I think the wild child aspect and the whole idea is that it's, it's not, it's just supposed to be drunk, it's supposed to be enjoyed, it's supposed to be celebrated, it's supposed to be just fun. You know, if you drank my wine and couldn't remember anything about the wine, but you opened it up on a birthday, dude, that's great, fantastic. You don't need to tell me, how was the birthday, right? Like, that's cool that you even like just opened a wine and it was part of some sort of celebration. I don't need you to tell me the tasting notes. I know what it tastes like, it's fine. <laughs> um, so, I, you know, that's, that's kind of the name of that wine, is the name is, is, is that. Yeah, it's just, it's supposed to be fun. Uh, it's not supposed to be serious. And sometimes, for me, that trips me up when I have to make phone calls to like the banks or you know, credit card companies. And they're like, so what's the name is? Wild Child Winery? And you know, it's almost like I, I have to like take a step back because I'm like, Dude, man, it doesn't sound like I'm very serious about this. And like, I'm, you know, to some degree I'm not. Uh, you know, it's, it's it's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be uh, a, a celebration. Um, so I think that's really the, the inspiration of it. And again, I, I am a little bit of a wild child. There's some aspects of, of my life that is a little crazy and insane. Um, and I've done some crazy and insane stuff. So, you know, it's as I've sold wine in the market and someone says, why wild child? Usually my response is, what are you doing tonight? You want to go out? <laughs> Let's go have fun tonight. And Nine times out of ten, they go, no, I'm good. I got you. I understand now. I'm just They see the glint in the eye, and they go, yeah, no, you, that seems like trouble. And it's like, no, it will be. Uh, definitely will be. Um, so part of that is leaning into that fun thing. And when you're in sales, you've got to lean into that. Um, one of the cool things about working for the Brennans, I keep going back to restaurant work, and the inspiration is that when you're on the stage, as we called it, the front of the house, you have to lean into certain aspects of personalities. If you don't have those personalities, the stories start, they start falling apart, they don't take shape. And you need to create that memory. So when you gotta lean into that personality, right? It was Ella Brennan, the former matriarch, who used to say like, well, we should kick it up a notch put a little bam in there. And her chef that worked for her took those and made it trademark names and became an exaggeration upon himself. And that was Emeril Lagasse. And Emeril Lagasse, who basically created the Food Network and Food TV and radicalized, changed all aspects, is the guy who leaned into that and said, you know, let's kick it up a notch and bam. And, you know, he, he became this over bigger than life type of person. And I think that's something that, uh, that I've started learning is to lean into that wild child. While yes, it's the inspiration of me, also I need to kind of keep up the aspect of that as well. And so when selling wine out into the market, uh, the first couple 
of times it's been very intimidating because um, it's first couple vintages and uh, you know I, I walk in a little unsure of myself and uh, you know that ego starts playing with you of like who are you why do you think you can even begin to have a conversation with some of the people or even have your name up on the shelf with any one of these other people and uh, you know you, you have to almost lean into that you're the wild child. The whole point of this was to be crazy and insane, right? And the more I lean into it, the better it gets. Mm -hmm. And uh, certainly going to Texas has been fantastic to go back, sell wine. It's been very well received so far. And, uh, you know, still, still trying in Oregon and Portland and uh, still learning the aspect and the nature of being here, not growing up here. Uh, and showing up in the middle of chaos, you didn't. I didn't. I feel like I'm a year or two behind because everything's been shut down and everyone's been very reclusive. And I think that's there's still some lingering of that. There's still a lot of people aren't going out like they used to. They're not socializing. They've gotten comfortable staying at home. So uh, I think the struggle sometimes is is having making those connections and going out into the market. Um, but I think that that's. Uh, that's just the nature of the beast to some degree. And some of that is, you, I gotta lean back into that personality of the wild child. Uh, yeah, yeah. Just start knocking on doors. Yeah, that's basically what you do. You gotta, you know, um, campaigning is a lot like distribution sales. You just, you. I try to tell myself not to carry bricks. And the bricks are when someone slams the door in your face or you know, gives you the him and ha or the no, you gotta learn how to brush that off and move on to the next one and come at it fresh. Each, each place is a fresh start and that's something that's a, that's a hard one. You know, doing door-to-door -door sales or door-to-door -door asking, it's not even door-to-door -door sales, it's door-to-door -door asking for just handouts. Like it's, that's a, you know, that's, that's, that's a rough gig, that's a rough job. Um, and you gotta be kind of insane to even think you could do that. Uh, you know, have that 30 second pitch and be ready to go and then go, now I'd like a check. <laughs> um, you know, so some of that I have to remember those trainings from 20 years ago of, uh, of how to approach sales to some degree. And it, and it helps to, you know, come home and have a partner who supports you and uh, have a certain amount of community that supports you. And, you know, I think that's what's really important about being in some place like Willamette Valley is that there's still a lot of very small producers that are very supportive and you, know, you get together with them and that's just, they're happy to celebrate the fact that you're even attempting, even trying, you know, something like this. Um, I don't know how it would be in California if you tried to roll into Napa with a small amount of money and try to be a small producer in Napa, I think you would be there would be a lot of like, good luck, kid, you know, uh, have fun. Let us know when you're broke, you can come work for us, you know. Um, and I don't, I don't get that here. I get a lot more of uh, helping and taking care of and sharing and being part of a community, uh, which is really cool, which is really unique and it's great. So the, the other part obviously is uh, of your business. You, you're, you're making wine now for the first time. So I'm curious about how that's gone. How has it gone, how has it gone learning production? 
uh, and actually learning to produce the wines you want to produce? I thoroughly enjoy making wines. Uh, thoroughly, it's the, the best aspect of, of, of this job and doing what I do. There, two of my favorite times is really I thoroughly enjoy harvest and crush. There's so much excitement, there's so much going on. It's just, it's a constant rush. I want to be around it 24 seven. Uh, you know, I, I literally will sleep in the car near the winery because we're just so busy. Everything is happening. You get to walk in the vineyards. Um, you know, you're making these decisions real quick. That is one of the absolute favorite things. Uh, the other thing is I love walking the fields. I absolutely love being with the growers. I love being outside, pulling leaves, shoot thinning, pruning, like all the crazy hard work stuff that people usually bitch and moan about. Uh, to me is is actually wonderful. It's fantastic. Um, I 100% hate compliance and uh, do not like picking up the phone and having to deal with government agencies. And you know, I I do not find joy in looking at bottle shapes and trying to figure out what color glass and what size bottle and like. That brings me no joy, no thrill whatsoever. Uh, you know, it's, it's those type of things that I struggle with, right? The, the compliance issues, the dealing with government agencies, the dealing with picking glass. Like, I don't know, man, just the one that looks great. You, you, someone else make that decision, you know? Uh, I thought label design was gonna be a, a just so much fun and creative energy and what have you. No, it's not. It's really not my favorite thing at all. Um, I, I think it's because you're just constantly making something and it's never good enough. So you're constantly throwing out ideas and it's, it's always just nope, 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 nope. And then you finally get it and now you've got to struggle through compliance. And then, you know, once you have it on your bottle, you've got to stare at it for like ever. It's forever, you know, it's that like, so I'll put things on the counter at the house and uh, any ideas I have, I'll slap it on a bottle and I'll put it on my kitchen counter and I'll walk by it for weeks. And if at any point I just, it, it makes me feel bad or I don't like it, then it, it's, it's garbage. Let's start all over. Um, so that's the, the, the struggles I have are that, uh, yeah, I think that, I think most winemakers struggle with the same thing. They don't want to deal with government and compliance and taxes and, you know, like label design, yeah, I guess it's cool to vote for the final label, but starting from nothing and then, you know, trying to create it, it's just, no, that's what an artist is for. Let's go hire someone, you know. Um, website design is not my forte, not like, don't really love doing that. You know, I gotta really uh, be inspired or be pushed because once I start doing it, it's just so meticulous and I just, I'd rather be out in the field chopping each individual berry off of a cluster than, you know, being on trying to create website design. Um, so as far as winemaking, it's going great. Winemaking is a lot of fun. It's, it's truly a lot of fun. It's great. There's new things to learn every day. I love being in the, the winery. I love being in the field. I love uh, tasting wines. I love visiting with people. I love uh, thinking about the aspects of how the wine will change. What did I do wrong? What did I do right? I think uh, every single bottle I've made, I've hated at some point. I have doubted myself. Every single wine I've made, I've loved at some point. Uh, I felt really like, all right, I finally got it going. 
Um, anytime that there is a win, I always just think about, okay, great, celebrate that win for the next hour because after that, we start all over again, right? And you gotta go back up that hill. So it's very uh, Sisyphus uh, aspect. Um, but I, you know, there, there's something great about having to start all over making a new wine because each time it's a new start. And, you know, it's, uh, what did uh, one of the winemakers say to me? My favorite vintage is the next one. And I, I really understand that aspect. Like every next vintage is my favorite vintage because I get to start all over again to some degree. Mm -hmm. And you have more foundation each time you do it. You know a little bit more, you're a little bit craftier, or at least you think you are. Uh, you know, the world has a funny way of smacking you around when you think you know everything. And uh, you know, the winemaking, yeah, yeah, no, love it, love it. Just hate compliance, you know. <laughs> Someday, maybe, if we grow large enough, I can pay someone to do all that. And you know, we'll hand that over and somebody else can handle that aspect, you know. But that's not, uh, that's not my, uh, inspiration or my love. Um, sometimes that's what sucks out all the fun, for me at least. It wouldn't be very on brand for a wild child to love compliance. Yeah, so no, that's I mean, right. Yeah, it really would not be. You yeah. shouldn't love compliance. Yeah, I mean, the website sometimes I just look at things and I go, well, are we too clean? Are we too nice? <laughs> like, boy, you know, it's not on brand to be responsible about paying bills on time for a wild child. But, you know, if I want to continue the brand, kind of got to gotta do that, right? Like. Uh, yeah, so yeah, I don't, yeah, I'd rather be out in the field any day, uh, or in the winery any day than, you know, let me clean a pump. Jeez, I, I will literally clean your pumps if I don't have to do compliance, right? Like, I'll crawl in tanks, scrub them down, right? I'd rather do that any day. Uh, you know, and I, I, I love it, uh, and I think there's always more to learn, and I think that's, sometimes I gotta, tamper down my own frustrations because I feel like I haven't learned enough and done enough and I haven't been there enough. Like there's just so much more every day, everything, there's more and more and more. And I just, how can I, you know, plug myself into the matrix and just download it all and no Kung Fu and like, that's not how things work. So, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, but I love it. So good. <laughs> good. <laughs> just, just the short answer is good. Uh, so you talked about you know the kind of the basis of Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, Willamette Valley Classic. Um, what is next? What are you looking ahead to? Are there projects on the horizon for yourself? Are there things well, you want to try? There's always projects. Yes. Uh, if if money was no object, there'd be more projects than I'd be able to handle. Um, and then someone would really need to do the compliance. Uh, yes, there is. There's certain varietals that I certainly would love to play with. Uh, cold Climate Syrah being one of them. I, I think that Cold Climate Syrah is really cool up here. Uh, and I think, again, something that can rival some of the greatest regions in the world with Syrah. Um, I'm really hip to the gorge. I think the gorge has a lot of potential, and that's certainly a wine-growing region that I had zero experience and zero really understanding and knowledge of in Texas. Um, I really, well, all of Oregon is really cool. I, I like Southern Oregon, and it's just so far away, but I'd like to spend some more time down there uh, working with some of those growers and winemakers, because I think there's a lot of stuff that's 
on the horizon that's just bubbling and we're just starting to see a little bit of some action coming from Southern Oregon. Uh, but I'd say it, as another varietal, Syrah, um, you know, Gamay. Uh, well, I do a Gamay, I guess, so that's not really on the horizon. Uh, you know, Syrah, maybe some more whites, playing around with some, I never wanted to play with Pinot Gris, but it's a really great grape here. And I think that's something that um, pushing myself into some areas that maybe I feel uncomfortable with. Uh, Pinot Gris would be one of those. Grenache would probably be one of those. Uh, Viognier would absolutely be one of those. Um, you know, there's certain varietals that I love and certain varietals that I don't love. Maybe play with some of them that I don't love and see what happens. Uh, maybe I'll learn to learn something new about myself and about winemaking. I think we would like to eventually own some land. I'd like to start being more active in the fields itself. Uh, I would be, in the future, I could see myself either owning the land or renting the land to some aspect and spending far more time out in the field walking, working with the vines. Um, and I think the future for me, the inspiration I would like is to eventually own some land and also work with some growers and have that combination of both the vigneron and negociant, to use the French terms. Uh, and I think that's where eventually I would lead to. Uh, and I would be real, I really want to see what's, uh, what's next for Oregon. There's some really cool stuff happening in the Gorge and uh, Southern Oregon and Willamette. There's some really great varietals, some very new varietals, stuff I've never seen outside of places like Spain or Italy that is being grown uh, that I think that uh, could have some really cool potential of making some really wonderful wines. Is there anything else you're looking ahead to at Oregon? Anything, uh, any other kind of predictions for the future? Either things you're looking ahead to uh, on a positive level or things you're fearful of as you look ahead for Oregon? Oh, I think, that, that's, I think that's a double-edged sword that's the same answer. Uh, fearful and hopeful for. Uh, like happy and fearful for. I think Willamette Valley is, um, you know, I, I hear other aspects, the murmurs of some people who have been here that oh, Willamette Valley is over. It's uh, everything that's great has been planted. Uh, that uh, land has gotten too expensive. Uh, that you know, um, it's done as much as it's going to do. And I think all of that is wrong. Uh, I think that we are going to see. I think Oregon, especially Willamette Valley, is on um, on a trajectory to just continually grow by leaps and bounds. I think we're gonna have more AVAs come online. Again, as I've said, I, right now, even in my mind, I can, I can imagine at least three, if not four more, in certain subregions that I could easily see broken up or created, crafted. Um, and I think that uh, we have not even begun to see expensive land. Uh, so that's what I'm fearful for and hopeful for to something is with popularity and with growth also brings more people who want to put more investment here, which then brings higher prices. And I think that we're going to see 
that happen. I think that, that uh, I don't see why Willamette Valley won't rival someplace like Napa. And I think we'll see, um, I guess the fearful thing is with that also comes the small people might get gobbled up and there might be bigger brands that are created and I think we'll maybe lose some of the smaller creative or they'll be pushed outside of Willamette. They'll be pushed in Hood, they'll be pushed along the coastline, maybe in Washington, or pushed into Idaho in Snake River. Um, you know, and I think that's that's one thing that I'm a little fearful for is that smaller people that want to come try their hand will be pushed out or priced out. But on the double-edged sword, it also creates Willamette Valley is really setting the tone for the whole world as as aspect of wine, and I think that uh, Willamette's really on that on that cusp of getting even greater notion and even pushing itself even further. And, you know, it's, it's amazing that there's still people that haven't heard of Willamette in, in America. And I think that you will start seeing more tourist flock here. I think with global climatic change, California is going to suffer. They already are. They're going to start running out of water. It's going to get too hot uh, to even have their Cabernet Sauvignon, which is then going to cause people to look for the next cab or the next wine. And, you know, that could decrease a lot of property values and there's going to be a lot of people leaving. And they're going to go somewhere and they're going to try to figure out where to go next. And I could see Willamette, I could see Walla Walla, I could see Red Mountain, I can see Oregon and Washington being that next. And uh, that's both exciting and terrifying because Again, the money aspect, uh, but I, I see nothing but, you know, uh, good for Willamette coming in the next couple decades. Um, you know, we certainly are going to have our own struggles with global climatic change, uh, especially with fires and uh, our own issues of drought and weather changes. And I think that we will see maybe a shift of some varietals, but I don't think Willamette's ever not going to be a wine-growing, producing uh, region that's respected on a world stage, if you will. Uh, I think that that's, that's always going to exist to a certain degree, unless we slide into the ocean after the Great Earthquake. But, you know, that's whatever. <laughs> Could happen, I don't sure. know. <laughs> we'll have other problems to deal with. Yeah, yeah there'll be other problems, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. So the last question I have for you, uh, you talked uh, a lot about kind of story in this, uh, obviously story, you were selling story as a sommelier, you've been, you're talking about kind of, so tell me about now you have your own story, tell me what the story is, what you're, what you're selling with Wild Child and what you kind of hope, where you kind of hope the story takes you. Oh, I still have to, I, I'm, I need to learn how to tailor my story a little bit shorter and get that <laughs> elevator pitch. Uh, I can be a little long-winded, obviously. Uh, so I think the, the, the story for me is, and again, I'm trying to figure that elevator pitch, I've gotten a little bit better, is someone who's been in the wine industry for 20 some odd years and wanted to go make wine, and, but wanted to take a, a, maybe not as serious as approach. I mean, there, there's a lot of, when I say not to be serious, that's not to say that I'm not spending 
countless amount of hours and being meticulous and being like on top of stuff and being involved. It's just the aspect and the gravitas of this is magic and it must be respected is sometimes that's like, it, it's bullshit. Um, I mean, I, I guess it works for their story, for other people's story to be able to sell wine. And that's great. You know, my story is that it's, it's uh, I'm just trying to make fun, approachable wines to some degree, you know, texturally driven, great acid, lower alcohol that can just be consumed and drank. And uh, let's have fun. Let's, you know, pair wine with music, pair wine with dance parties, pair wine with, uh, you know, late night dove bars and fettuccine and hot tubs. I mean, you know, like we don't need to always think and, and of it as this super special, sacred, you know, only one person can make water into wine. It's reverence, you know, it's just, you know, like let's, 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 let's take some of that mystique out of it, right? Let, let's treat it as it is. And, you know, uh, for the longest time in Western civilization, it's what you had because the water was polluted. You know, you didn't, you didn't have it another option you know it was beer or wine man or or dying of cholera or you know dysentery i mean it's it's kind of your options right um so i think that that's our goal is just have fun with it uh and it should be enjoyed and yeah and i think that goes in brand with wild child right like yeah no nah, let's drink it out of sippy cups in the back of a truck right like Let's tailgate with it. Like we don't need fancy glassware. Like, you know, let's just let's just enjoy this. Um, you know, don't. I'll regret saying it someday. Of like, don't cellar it. It doesn't need to be cellared. It should be drunk early. And I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna regret that because <laughs> uh, I already know certain lands that I'm starting to look at and, and make it a little bit more of a serious or style wine. But you know, but that's uh, I think that's something that you know. Let's, let's take some of the reverence out of it and some of the mystique out of it and let everyday people enjoy it. And I think that's a struggle that the wine industry is going to have for a while, is having right now. It, I think the wine industry does struggle with getting young, new drinkers that are all drinking like the bane of our existence, White Claw, you know, like, uh, you know, if there's one aspect, if there's one that I will dog and just absolutely go crazy about, it, it'd be something like White Claw. These spritzers just drive me nuts. Um, you know, be into beer, that's great. Be into coffee, love it, me too. Be into wine, I want you to be into wine. White wine spritzers, get out of here, man. Like, the White Claws, get out of here with it. You know, just, I can't stand them. They're just the bane of the existence. So how do we get that those individuals who do enjoy that because there's a certain lifestyle, branding, fun aspect away from that and back to wine where they're not saying that's what grandma and grandpa drank and Sunday over a steak dinner, or, you know, that's what my buddy who's a stockbroker drinks at a steakhouse in New York City or, you know, that's what, uh, you know, people in Europe drink, you know, how do we make this more fun? How do we make it? Uh, it's just something to enjoy. Like it doesn't have to be always thought about constantly. I'll do that. I'm obsessive with it. Let me do that. You know, like you know, to, but just enjoy the wine. Yeah, you know. There's your, there's your slogan right there. That's just right. Just enjoy the wine. Just enjoy the wine. I like it. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. I'll do the obsession. <laughs>
let me go down that rabbit hole, you know? Yeah. That's all the questions that I have for you. Uh, well, anything, you. I, anything I didn't ask that I should have, anything we didn't cover that you'd uh, like to cover? I, I don't think so. Yeah. Cover traveling and drinking. You, you, you hit the the thesis. Two. We hit the thesis. The, yeah, well. those, are, those are the two main aspects. Yeah. If you take nothing else away from this interview, travel the world, travel the world, and drink wine. It'll change your life. That's awesome. right. Thank yes. you so much for your time, for coming, coming here and sharing your stories with us, making us all laugh. Appreciate that. Yeah, well, thank you. Go ahead and let you off the hook. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.